everybody. I'm Aaron Martell. I'm Shannon Fleming. And I'm Ray Zimmer. And welcome to the inaugural R4 Summit, a podcast where we discuss and analyze a musical album of our choice. So we got the whole gang together. We combined all the branches of the R4 podcast into one. And I got to pick the album we're doing. So I chose Kisses' 1976 album, Destroyer. Let's start with Shannon. First of all, welcome back. It's been a while. Hello. Oh, wow. It's been a very long time. I, I believe it's been since like May of last year. Wow. Yes. So how did you discover Kiss in this particular album? Um, I discovered this through my one and only big brother, Aaron Martell. And I had to have been a very little girl because I was born in 1974. And the first song that I remember singing was Shout It Out Loud, which to this day remains my very favorite song from this album. And I remember screaming it through the house and mom and dad being like, okay, can you just uh, stop it? Just, uh, just stop it. Stop it. <laughs> stop. <laughs> I mean, screaming at the top of my lungs. I love this song so much. Ray? Um, you know, they kind of like, always kind of on the periphery for me when I was a kid. Like, I remember I was living in Connecticut. My next door neighbor, he's like an older kid. He had a bunch of their albums. And I thought they looked cool. And then I remember coming home one night, and my mom was flipping through the channels, and I got to see Phantom of the Park. Well, at least the jailbreak scene. Oh, jeez. <laughs> so that was like 78. That yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was like, go ahead, do it, Ace, do it. I think it was Ace had like a wrist rocket or some shit like that. And like, he ended up blasting his way through the jail cells. So I remember that. My kindergarten self thought it was super cool, and I, my 45-year-old self still thinks it's pretty cool. Um, but, you know, I always kind of respected them. The only time I, like, wasn't really, like, super fond of was the uh, God Made Rock and Roll for You period. For yeah. some, and maybe that was that's that album. I don't really uh, know. But they did that for the, what, the Bill and Ted's yeah. soundtrack? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Other than that, I mean. The second one, the bad one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And that's the only time that really kind of fell out of favor for me. But for, like, this album in particular, I'm going to have to admit here, I was probably 38 before I actually sat down and listened to the entire <laughs> album. <laughs> but I got my kids into it, too. So they were, at the time, they were into it. All right. Very cool. <laughs> I've already covered Kiss on the podcast a few times, so I'm going to save my feelings about this record for the final thoughts section of the show. I do have to give a disclaimer, though, is this is the one album where I cannot be unbiased. It's not that I think it's perfect or flawless, but this record means a lot to me, which, again, I'll go over in my final thoughts. Now I'll lay on you some basic facts about this record. And when I mean facts, I mean facts as only Wikipedia can give you. Destroyer is the fourth studio album by American rock band KISS, released on March 15, 1976 by Casablanca Records. It was produced by Bob Ezrin and was recorded from September 3rd through the 6th, 1975 at Electric Lady Studios in New York City and from January to February 1976 at Record Plant Studios, New York City. It reached number 11 on the U.S. Billboard 200 chart and is certified two times platinum by the RIAA. Next, here's the band's lineup card. We have Paul Stanley on vocals and rhythm guitar, Gene Simmons on vocals and bass, Ace Fraley on lead guitar and vocals, Peter Chris on the drums, percussion and vocals. There are additional musicians which we'll mention as we see fit. All right, let's get into a track-by-track analysis of this album. The opening track is Detroit Rock City, written by Paul Stanley and Bob Ezrin. Shane, what do you think of this one? This is a very powerful tune. Um, well, it, it, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but to this day, I believe Kiss opens with this song in every single concert. The, the two times that I saw them, they did open with this song. And it's, you know, you've got the guy who's in the, in the car. He's crashing. Isn't, isn't like the broadcast something about like a, a fan who's about to die? Yeah. Or something like that? Yep. And um, 
and it just goes, it launches into like a Detroit sounding type of song. It's kind of dark and grungy. I'm almost on the grungy side, but then it like, you know, burst out into like this, you know, it's, it's really cool. You can see like the fireworks just like taking off and then bursting out on the stage. And I, and I love the way Paul Stanley sings it. He's almost like screaming it in parts, which probably did not bode well in the future for Phantom of the Opera. But besides the fact it went really over, it went over really well in this case. I love this song. How about you? Right. Um, I got a second. I think Paul, St- what she said, there's, Paul Stanley is like one of the most underrated vocalists in the history of rock. And I don't think he ever got his due. Well, maybe to people who are outside of like hard rock and heavy metal. I mean, I think he's, I think he's easily up there with a lot of the people who have made the Hall of Fame. Yeah. But, you know, from what you've told me, it didn't bode well for him. <laughs> it didn't work out for him longer than mine. <laughs> no, no it, it really didn't. It actually almost destroyed his voice. But yes, he had a lovely sound, but it, he just didn't know how to control it. He just didn't know what he was doing, I don't think. He blew it out. Yeah, he blew it out. Yeah, I, that, that's a lot of rock vocalists. I mean, they kind of get into it because, you know, hey, you know, it's easy, right? Yeah. But, that, but the actual mechanics of the voice aren't taken to an effect. I, guess, I don't know of anyone who actually does do that. So like, I guess Ozzy Osbourne screams into, like, towels and stuff like that to make his voice work. <laughs> yeah. Even he's lost a lot over yes, the years, has. too. Yes, yeah. So. yeah. But as far as this song concerned, I like that, holy shit, this song swings like a motherfucker. And uh, Peter Chris, I, I love Peter Chris's drums on this, and he had, like, a real natural swing feel to him. It kind of helped propel it along. Gene's bass playing in this is, like, really solid. Actually, I think he's also, as far as bassists go, he was, yeah, he's not Jaco Pastorius, but he's, like, in the pocket, and he does what needs to be done. He's a very effective bassist. And I love the drum breakdown with the guitar melody in the front of it. That's anybody, anybody who's listened to the podcast on Albumatics knows I'm a total sucker for, like, double harmony leads. And, uh... This one is just aces, no pun intended. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, that opening riff definitely falls under Sergeant Leon um, O'Connor's rule of simple plus effective equals awesome. And that's what that opening riff is. And I got a question. Is there a piano in there? Am I here? There is piano? Okay, that's just not like my tin ear. Yep. All right. So, hey, it's a heavy ass song with piano in the back. You can't beat that. Yeah. Well, it sounds kind of like what, like, again, from Motor City. It it does have some resonance of Detroit, even during that time. I mean, it's kind of dark. It has, but it has an electrifying background to it. And it just launches onto a scene that was still pretty powerful in its day. This sure sounded strange to KISS fans when they heard it for the first time, though. Right off the bat, Bob Ezrin's presence is felt as we get the sound effects intro with the dishes washing and then a guy getting into a car and driving with the radio playing KISS live rock and roll all night. Then the tune slams in and Paul bellows out the lyrics, which detail a fan going to a rock show and dying in a car accident on the way. Gene's bass plays a cool counter melody in the verses and the chorus was made to be shouted in arenas. Peter's drumming shows a new level of sophistication, and the dual-harmonized guitar solo between Ace and Paul is a classic. To beef up the sound, Bob Ezrin played a piano underneath the chords, played by the guitars, but it's clearly audible. So yes, you did hear it. This is an awesome song, one of the band's best, and in my top ten Kiss tunes, and proved that the band could play more complicated material than they had shown that they could before. Agreed. This is often played as the opening number in concert, like Shannon said, and it was the third single from the album, which failed to chart, but is notable in another way, which we'll get to later. At the end, there's the sound of screeching brakes and a loud crash, which segues directly into the next track. And that next track is King of the Nighttime World, written by Paul Stanley, Kim Fowler, Mark Anthony, and Bob Ezrin. Shannon, your thoughts? This is a pretty cool tune. Um, you know, Kiss is a funny band for me. I, I like, you know, Detroit Rock City was such a great intro, and this one kind of really kind of changes gears for me. We're kind of into that darkness again, but maybe that's fitting for what this album really, really entails. I mean, just look at the album cover for one. I mean, here they are, like on the scene, like destroying everything, Destroyer. I like it. It's not one of my favorite tunes, but it's one of the better ones. Okay, right. 
That's kind of cool because the riff for the verse section, it, I, I call it, it's like a Rolling Stones trick. It's like it's an inversion chord that they use. Um, you can I hear it in like Van Halen on Running With The Devil and Unchained. Um, ACDC uses it on Rock and Roll Damnation. And I think there's a couple other like Kiss songs where they use it. Kind of yeah. a deal. And yeah. it's, it's cool. It, it works out. It's a good straight ahead rocker. I gotta tell you, man, this is like 70s teenage angst bottled up into like, I don't know, is it like a three minute song? Is yeah. it plus like that? Yeah. It's kind of cool. Uh, Ace's solo is pretty understated. It's not really like in your face, but like he's definitely well versed in like stock rock licks, which is kind of just part of the musical vocabulary for like a lot of guitarists of his generation. So that's pretty, uh, pretty awesome too. And I, when I hear this song, I can just picture like sitting in a Camaro with like, you know, some Schlitz <laughs> and a pack of Paul Malls with my, my buddy stole from his old man. And we're hanging out somewhere and we're hoping to score or something like that. It definitely like puts me in mind of that. All right. Ace's guitar almost sounds like a siren signaling the crashing guitars and Peter's drum rolls that start this track off. Kim Fowley, famous for being the manager of the 70s all-female band The Runaways, wrote this with guitarist Mark Anthony of the band Hollywood Stars, who recorded it first. But Paul and Ezrin rearranged it and got a writing credit. The main verse riff is hard-rocking and Paul's vocals are muscular and projecting while the choruses pick up the tempo and have an anthemic sing-along quality to them. Again, Peter Chris is a standout switching up the tempos and drum patterns, and Gene plays some nice runs on the bass. The guitar solo is again harmonized and is deceptively simple. This is sort of a companion song to Detroit Rock City, and it was played that way on the Destroyer tour, one after the other, like it is here. Lyrically, Paul sings of a young man whose daily life is school and family fights, but at night, he secretly goes to the city and comes alive, having fun and hooking up with his headlight queen. I love the I'm the king, I'm the king slow build in the final chorus, and this song kicks all kinds of ass. It's definitely a fan favorite. The next track is God of Thunder, written by Paul Stanley. How about this one? I really like this song, and I love the fact that Gene Simmons sings it. In fact, you almost wonder if Paul Stanley didn't write it for him. It's kind of almost like his, um, I don't know, his anthem of sorts. I mean, of course, he has many if you go to, like, Love Gun or whatever, (laughs) (laughs) with with everything in between. But this song is just so cool. It's it's great just to sing that part, you know, God of Thunder. You know, that whole, like, the guitar, the heavy guitars there and the really cool bass in the background. And, you know, as Ray said earlier about Peter's drum playing, I, I think he I think he is an underrated drum player. I think he's really quite good. It's just a really cool, groovy tune. It's nice. Ray? I love the shit out of this song. This is like one of my favorite songs in the entire album. Uh, the first time I heard it was on, I know it's a radio show I brought up in the past, is uh, Metal Shop with the Butcher Charlie Kendall. <laughs> and I did at first I didn't get it with the whole thing with the kids in the background and the whole walkie-talkie thing. Yeah. Now it just seems kind of like eerie, almost like predating Marilyn Manson kind of kids and spookiness, which I think it's kind of cool. I know Manson's like a total Kiss fan. You, yeah. No, no, I think that's a really, really cool comparison, actually. that That's interesting. I I, I could see where you, you could hear that in him. Totally. Yeah, yeah. It, it, and I guess that's Ezrin's kids, right? Or something. Yeah. Like I wish my dad did cool shit like that. <laughs> <laughs> but the riff is just fucking monster. Gene claims that Paul Hardly came to him with lyrics for the song that were like more about being the god of love and this, that, and the other. And I think after some cajoling, like he darkened him up a little bit. I'm, I'm sure Gene probably would take credit for the lyrics in some way. Gene takes credit for everything. Oh yeah, he of does. course. <laughs> he, he takes he takes part of the band. <laughs> he takes credit for creating the universe. <laughs> But, but you know, <laughs> life you know, would not I, exist without me. <laughs> that's a pretty good gene. That's yeah, a good that gene was, that wasn't bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? I think it's funny with this was I like the keyboards in the background. It doesn't sound corny, and it doesn't sound. I mean, they could probably turn it, making it sound like Kurt Weill kind of theater esque, kind <laughs> yeah. of like well, like Ray Manzarek kind of was aiming for, which yeah. used to be a turnoff for me with the doors. Yeah. But um, no, the keyboards are very cool in this too. So uh, 
Man, I can't say much more than that. This song is the shiznit. All right. <laughs> yep, Paul wrote this, and his version is sped up, and you can hear the demo on the Kiss box set from 2001. But when Paul presented it to Ezrin, he liked it, but he slowed it down and said Gene needed to sing it, which made Paul a little butthurt, but he <laughs> came around on it later. Here, it's a stomping, plodding rocker, which has that heavy, menacing riff and Peter bashing the skins like Godzilla's approaching. Gene sings this in an ominous demon voice, probably the first time you hear it on record, and he really sells the evil angle of the lyrics, which are about him being the god of thunder and rock and roll. He's descended from the (laughs) gods and was born to rule the earth and all of rocks so powerful, he'll steal your virgin soul with his mighty godlike dick. (laughs) Or maybe his tongue. (laughs) Yeah. In a first tongue, which he'd probably prefer. <laughs> I dig Peter's drum fills before the solo, and Ace's guitar solo is dark and dirty and captures the feel of the tune perfectly. Now, here's where Ezrin goes a little bit overboard with the studio tricks. There are all kinds of ambient echoed whistles and scratchy noises all throughout the track, as well as a hazy, blurred production overall that kind of provides the threatening atmosphere, and I dig all that. But he also threw in these high-pitched voices all over the place, which were recordings of his kids as they goofed around the studio. He probably thought they sounded spooky or mysterious, but to me they're a little distracting and just plain dumb. Nevertheless, on most days, if you ask me, this is one of my favorite all-time Kiss songs. It might actually be my favorite Kiss song of all time. And this album starts off unbelievably good. The following track is Great Expectations, written by Gene Simmons and Bob Ezrin. can do and you wish you were the one I was doing a Shannon your opinion <laughs> I'm sorry but the whole Beethoven thing in the beginning is pretty funny <laughs> <laughs> and, and it almost seems kind of like, I don't know, off pitch slightly. And that's part of the reason why, again, I'm like at this this like crossroads where it's like, wow, this is interesting. I mean, it's an interesting turn. And I know they brought in many musicians. Even Bob Ezrin himself stood in for, is he on this one, in fact? I don't even remember. But um, I just think it's interesting. They brought in an orchestra. They had like, you know, singers brought in or, or a choir. And it's 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 just an interesting tune. Um, <laughs> Doesn't float your boat, huh? It didn't really do it for me. <laughs> yep. Ray. I actually, I, I love the Beethoven-esque. <laughs> 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 but this is what can make it interesting. <laughs> yeah. I like the electric guitar in the intro with the piano playing. Yeah. Uh, I think it's kind of, the bass work is really good, too. And uh, the piano with the acoustic guitar in the background, I thought that was kind of a nice touch. And I'll be honest with you, I dig the Baroque-esque bombast of the chorus. For me, it's like you can see how Bob Ezrin was able to create the same arena rock atmosphere with Pink Floyd's The Wall. And if you think about yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Probably about a thousand times. And the narrator of the song could be Pink before his total mental breakdown, (laughs) which is, I think, what I like about because I love The Wall, too. So I I think it can almost be like a companion piece. (laughs) But it's also. Pink Floyd, inspired by Kiss. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Why are we laughing? I can see we're going to grind these people, and it's going to come out right, damn it. <laughs> Bob probably went to uh, David Gilmar. Listen to this. <laughs> this is what we're going for. <laughs> <laughs> and Rich Wright was just like, please fire me, Roger. Just please fucking fire me and just pay me salary, and we'll be good. I'll never, you won't hear from me until I die. <laughs> or at least we do the G3. It's like the Monty Python movie all of a sudden. <laughs> But I also, towards the end, I guess it's kind of in in the way of like classical music is a lot. Well, in like classical music, there's like themes or motifs, melodies. And I like how they kind of return to that main intro, like for their solo with the the electric guitars again. So Mm -hmm. that's all I got to say on this. This this song is a guilty pleasure for me. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Gene Simmons based a song on the classic novel Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. Uh, No. (laughs) <laughs> no. Uh, 
<laughs> now, furthermore... Ezrin's piano is very prominent, and he uses a phrase from Beethoven's Sonata Patatique in the construction of the song. But does Beethoven get a writing credit? Fuck you, Ludwig van! Gene's first writing contribution to the album is kind of goofy... It's a ballad primarily written on acoustic guitar that has dumbass lyrics, but I still kind of dig them. I can't help it, at least in the verses, where you see Gene singing his song, playing his guitar, and beating his drum. And this must turn you on if you're a female audience member, I guess, because you wish he was doing it to you instead. Do you want to play the role? I don't. (laughs) Gene sings in a plaintive, tender voice, and it's laughably silly. The chorus is god-awful, though. I hate it. <laughs> and Ezrin, again with the gimmicks, he brought the boys' choir of Harlem in to sing backing vocals on the chorus, and it doesn't help it one bit. <laughs> Plus, there's all kinds of orchestral instruments thrown in, and it just becomes a hot mess. Even with all of this, I still like the track, but I have to concede it's my least favorite, and thus it's Aaron Stinky Stinker. <laughs> Oh, vive la différence. (laughs) So let's flip the imaginary record over and drop the imaginary needle on Flaming Youth, written by Ace Fraley, Paul Stanley, Gene Simmons, and Bob Ezrin. Shannon, what do you think? I think this is a decent song. This song to me is classic rock and roll. It it sounds like a a couple of songs before, but you know what it really makes me think of is a lot of what comes after, like in the late 70s, no, not even that, the 80s. So many 80s songs sound like this song. And it makes you kind of wonder if some of these artists didn't go back. I'm talking like, you know, like your Brian Adams type of artist. I mean, it just seems so easygoing. It's, It's kind of cool. The song actually kind of um, isn't like what the way the song sounds, like Flaming Youth. It's like, you know, you want it to be like this, you know, earth-shattering thing. And it's kind of like fun and easygoing teenage, you know, love or whatever. And just hanging out. And, yeah, that was really, really deep. I have no idea what the fuck you just were talking about. (laughs) (laughs) either. This is going to turn into a Springsteen thing. I can tell already. (laughs) Was this about aliens in space? And anal probes <laughs> set the world on fire, uh, or at least my cheeks. <laughs> Ray, what do you think about this? I think it's cool. I think Paul's almost got like a Roger Daltrey-esque delivery in this song. So I can, I wouldn't doubt if the Who kind of like played into their like you know. Oh yeah, influences big influence for sure. But, so I can. Or did Kiss influence the Who? Yeah, probably did. <laughs> oh yeah, of course. Gene wrote, you know, Tommy. Yeah. <laughs> That's a given. Gene wrote, won't get fooled again. He yeah. Gave, gave it yeah. <laughs> the keys are kind of a nice touch in the crescendoing outro chorus. And it's kind of like sticks, but it doesn't suck. Full, dis- <laughs> full disclaimer, I actually do love sticks. I just don't like that song, Blue Collar Man. Um, I just- but at least it doesn't suck. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I'm sure Dennis DeYoung will probably come to my house and you know, yeah. put a fork in my eye. Oh, yeah, because he listens to the podcast. I'm, I'm sure he does. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, this is another the angst of being a teenager and having people not ex- ex- understand you. And, you know, they found a way to take that bottle up and market it. And they do it in a very nice package. Ace gets some tasty licks in. And I, I, I got a kick out of this because I, I listened to the song like about two or three times through. Like, it's only like two minutes and 58 seconds yeah, long. It's <laughs> quick. Yeah, it's a quick one while he's away. <laughs> so Ezrin took a musical piece written by Ace, another one written by Paul, and another one written by Gene and kind of mashed them together to come up with this. The most recognizable piece of it was taken from a Gene demo called Mad Dog that you can hear on the Kiss Box set. It's an energetic rocker with a catchy chorus, and I love the higher, higher, and higher hook. Ace plays a good, if repetitive, solo, though there are rumors he might not have played it. More on that later. Paul sings heroically about how the young people are going to break out from the shackles of the old guard who don't understand them and make their mark, setting the world on fire and raising their flag higher. Sort of a riff on the young versus old eternal conflict. And, of course, Ezrin has to get his bullshit in with a calliope sound effect 
buried in the chorus, but really prevalent in the breakdown section and totally unnecessary. But it doesn't deter me because of the buildup and loudness and intensity all the way to the final higher and higher and higher, which I fucking love. <laughs> the Mad Dog riff appears again in the fade out, and I've always dug this track, still do. This was the second single that reached number 74 on the U.S. Hot 100 chart. The next track is Sweet Pain, written by Gene Simmons. thoughts this is to me a pretty much a classic gene simmons type of song you know you've got like that that funny intro that almost has a delay added to it and of course he's got like he's got to add some sort of a sound effect in there like mm, type of thing <laughs> and he sings it always like this you know, like that type of thing. and it's like it's it's almost like he's like a bulldog with like big jowls <laughs> well he actually is now that he kind of looks older. like it doesn't yeah, he kind yeah. of sort of yeah. yeah except he's had some never mind <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's his tongue. <laughs> it's, it's so much his cheeks are so big to hold in all that tongue. Yeah. <laughs> well, you almost kind of picture him as Austrian, like an Arnold Schwarzenegger when he sings at times. It's almost what I liken him to because he always sings with some kind of thing like this. <laughs> you know, it, 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 this is a cool tune, though, because it does remind me so much of like some of the other stuff before and after, of course. And I'm, that's not anything that's real deep other than the fact that I, I think of like things like um, Deuce. For instance, he'll, he'll sing something very similar like that. Mm -hmm. It's the same type of style. You always know going into the tune who's going to be singing at number one. <laughs> of course, he wrote and sang this one. It's a style, and all you can call it is like a Gene Simmons style. You know, you know what you're getting when it's a Gene song. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, <laughs> and all attitude, big time, and you know, and basically reeking of like sexual prowess. I mean, that's that's the way that I've always interpreted his playing. Now, that is a Gene Simmons song. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> yep, <Exactly>. pretty much. <laughs> it's a good tune. I like it. <laughs> right. <laughs> the reason I was like, what are the guitar layers in this intro riff? Because I actually, when I did a little experiment when I was listening to this, I would take out a headphone and I would listen to one side, and then I would take out the other headphone and listen to the other side. And so far, what I can pick up is it sounds like two distorted electrics and two acoustic guitars, and all four guitars are like... They're almost like on two teams. One electric and one acoustic is on one team, and the other one's on the other team. But um, they're both playing like variations, like a little bit different on it. But yeah. I recommend anybody who's just kind of curious about this song or just their their recording techniques in general, check, try doing that because it's really kind of cool. But that said, I love the intro to this. I think the music in the verse section is about as equally as catchy as the chorus section. I mean, usually there's like a little bit of off balance. You know, there's the old yeah. don't bore us, get to the chorus. Dude, I'm happy with just the verse sections alone for yeah. it. Um, I kind of wish they turned Ace up a little bit in the mix more. He just seems kind of like, I don't know, where they turn, like he's just some guy off in the corner. Like, oh, yeah, there's a guitar solo going on over there, but, you know, yeah. I, want, I want more Ace. Yeah. You know? And I like, I, I, got, I, got, yeah, I get a kick out of it. Like, anyhow, anyhow, <laughs> man. <laughs> yep. That's that man. demon voice. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Bringing demon out on meets this. meets Kermit kind of a thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> anyhow, piggy. <laughs> But I like also like how the song ends with like the build up of the chorus and they add like the background vocals and that and the and the lead guitar line in the end. So it's a uh, yeah, pretty pretty awesome. Yeah, okay. I guess Gene likes it a little rough. It's nothing more than a rocking ode to S and M. Gene's got his leathers and whips and he's ready to show you now. I seem to detect some acoustic guitars and Ray confirmed that. It's buried in the main riff and also in the chorus riff, and it's nothing special, but I still like it. Gene has some vocal mannerisms, genisms that crack me up in this, you know, like, aww, sweet and, and then yell at the end of the breakdown section again, <laughs> Now the story goes that Ace couldn't be bothered to leave his card game with his buddies to come to the studio and lay down the solo, so Ezrin brought in a ringer, Dick Wagner, that's the best name ever, man. <laughs> I didn't put two and two together, and that is so unlike me. <laughs> Dick Wagner was a guy who played with everyone from Alice Cooper to Lou Reed. 
and he played the guitar too. solo, yeah. And there seems to be a little bullshit here because Ace did play a solo for this track, which was included on the Destroyer Resurrected album from 2012, and that was just basically Ezrin remixing and remastering the original album for its 25th anniversary, which brought some clarity and crispness to the tracks, but Ezrin still had to fuck around and tinker with them too. Just can't help himself, huh, Bob? <laughs> Destroyer was the first time outside musicians played on a Kiss album, and I do prefer the Wagner solo, but it's probably because I'm more used to it. This track is obviously filler, but I've always liked it. It's stupid fun. It's Gene Simmons. <laughs> <laughs> the following track is Shout It Out Loud, written by Paul Stanley, Gene Simmons, and Bob Ezrin. You like this one? This is my all-time favorite Kiss song of all time. And that is, I don't even give a shit if it's biased. It is the best song ever written by this band. I love it, love it, love it. And I think it might be the first song that I literally ever learned how to sing. And I think I said that earlier. But it is so nostalgic for me. Every now and again, I'll just throw it out. Literally, I'm 44 years old. I'll throw it on and like turn it up to 10 and scream it through the house. <laughs> I love this song right down to like every, the chorus with like the background vocals, everything just even like the, the single, the, the drums do, 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 like in between before they even launch into the actual chorus. I, there's not enough I can say about it. In fact, didn't you have like a Mickey mouse record player? Yeah. Oh, nice. You had one of those too? Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> that was well, my original record player. And this Sweet. probably should be really safe for the end, but you know, I remember, you know, I think he played it on this when I was little, but I think the the version that I heard might have even been his second vinyl album <laughs> because he played <laughs> out the first one so much. <laughs> That's dedication. When you've done that, <laughs> you've got two or three copies of an album, you're yeah. like, all right, yeah. you've committed to In that. It's <laughs> like a sacrifice to the gods, you know? Absolutely. I, there's not enough I can say about it. It's the reason why I needed to be on this podcast so much was because of this song, this album. It is because I love my brothers so dearly. Thank you. Aw. <laughs> right on. Very cool. My brothers won't ever say that about me, but so I just have to appreciate it from another family. <laughs> Ray, what do you think? Actually, my kids, actually, my, my son Frank loved this song, and I remember like watching him play like like drums on his thighs, and he was like two years old at this song. He wow. like, really loved this. But th- this song is a great fucking song. It's got great inter- great interplay between the twin guitars and the bass melody in the intro, and uh, that's one of those things I don't think Gene gets a lot of credit for either. Like this, his, his bass play, playing? Yeah, his, his melodic, he's got a really melodic player, you know? Yeah. I like the call and response in the verse section. It almost sounds to me like Paul went back and recorded himself in the background vocals for the answer. Like, do you need to be reminded? <laughs> yeah, he probably did. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I think it's kind of cool how Paul and Gene split vocal duties. So you got like the best of both worlds yeah. in one song. And that, that, was, that was a smart choice, I thought. Uh, the chorus got great gang vocals. And I really love the shit out of the sending piano figure yeah. in, in the chorus. Yeah, that, so yep, Ezra and again. Well, yep. yes. I, mean, <laughs> I know there's some schools that considered him like you know the uh, the fifth kiss <laughs> member, which I'm sure we'll probably face some you know Ooh. I get some like cab- many kiss fans hear you say that cabbages and rotten eggs thrown Ooh. at me for saying that, but uh, <laughs> but I like how Ace's solo goes over Gene's pre-chorus section. Like they could have like just picked them like had them blow over the, the entire top of the song, but no, they go to the Gene section and use that for the solo. Yep, and it's nice and bendy as all shit. To me, this is the closest Kiss ever got to writing a true rock anthem after Rock and Roll All Night. Paul and Gene trade off on lead vocals, and it sounds great. Makes me wish they'd done more of this in their career. Lyrically, it's a simple party song. Everybody get together and have a good time. Again, for the young. Don't let them tell you that there's too much noise. They're too old to really understand. Peter maintains a driving beat in the chorus, and vocally, it's just repeating the song title, but it's catchy as fuck. Good enough to make my really baby sister at the time, (laughs) and I shot along to it whenever we played it on my kitty record player at the time, driving our parents nuts. (laughs) That's awesome. And that's another reason why I love this band so much. My father hated Kiss. (laughs) 
It's so, a hallmark of any great rock and roll band. Is if your parents hate it, the absolutely. better it is. It be I mean, I could admit I loved his Led Zeppelin and Doors and Black Sabbath, but Kiss, nah. <laughs> <laughs> you, I could, I could have that. <laughs> Again, you can hear Ezrin's piano pounding the chords and thickening the sound, following along with Gene's bass. The solo is short, but maintains the upbeat energy of the rest of the track. I love the trade-off quips between Paul and Gene and the choruses at the end of the tune. You got to have a party! <laughs> Turn it up louder! That's good. Man. I love wow. that, man. <laughs> yeah, I even like Paul's, like, that whole, like, you know, hound dog thing he's got going on at some point. That whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Paulisms. Oh, he's got his own Paulisms. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> this song means yeah. so much to me, not just for the connection to Shannon alone, but I really do love the song. <laughs> This was the first single from the album that reached number 31 on the Billboard Hot 100 chart, and it also hit number one in Canada. Woohoo! Outside the United States. We. <laughs> oui. Kiss, eh? That depends on which part of the country. <laughs> the penultimate track is Beth, written by Peter Chris, Stan Penridge, and Bob Ezrin. Beth, I hear you. Calling, but I can't come home right now. Me and the boys are playing, and we just can't find the sound. Just a few more hours, and I'll be right home to you. I think I hear them calling. Oh, Beth, what can I do? Shannon, lay it on us. This song became huge. I'm not even sure they anticipated the kind of popularity that it, it stirred. I mean, it, it just... Oh, they did not. It was just... And it's funny because Peter Chris sings it so gently and lightly. He's got that raspy voice and he's playing the piano, right? No. <laughs> no, it's Ezrin. It's Uncle Bob. Okay, that yep, was Ezrin yep. playing it. See, I thought for some reason he played the piano on it. That's interesting. But um, it's it's a it's a sad song. It's about his wife, right? Well, no, kinda. He said it was in interviews. Okay, that's why I I take it that way. And it's a very sweet song, and it sounds like she's always waiting. She's just waiting and waiting, and it's and you've got like I mean this big time, you know what was like the New York Philharmonic place in it. It's like it's, yes, it's like the whole like oh, you wow. know it is yeah no the, the whole yes. solo section is just nothing but like you know this beautiful like string, these strings like with a cello and, you know, a little bit of violin there. But yeah, it's come to find out. Yeah, it's the New York Philharmonic. So it, it's a pretty intense tune. And he's he, he sings it just so pitifully. <laughs> Gene probably could have played the cello, but he decided to let the New York Philharmonic. Oh, OK. Yeah, got it. Yeah. Gene could play every instrument well, I mean, on the album. How embarrassing. Right? I did. I thought he actually played the piano on that. That's kind of funny. <laughs> But yeah, so I think it's a really, really good tune. It's sweet. It's simple. It's sad. And it, it did. It garnered so much success and popularity. And I don't know how it did critically, to be honest. But um, I like it. I think it's just a nice little song. It's it's sweet. Ray. Ah, boy, I'm torn on this one in some ways. In some ways, I'm fully focused on how I feel. We go from shout out loud. It's really anthemic and it's fun. <laughs> and we hurl... Right into this steaming pile of excrement known as Beth. <laughs> um, oh, oh, you're up. <laughs> All right. Now, this is 45-year-old reflective Ray versus 16-year-old Ray who hated power ballads. So, I mean, there are part, there's some saving features of the song. I mean, actually, I think the bassoons are probably the best part. I like the, the mixture of the piano and the bassoons. I've never heard bassoons rock as hard, but they're very understated. And I was like a Jim Morrison kind of... Oh, <laughs> in the background way. And I think... Uh, the big-ass so instruments to yeah, the boot, so. for sure. My hat, I love double reed players. That's a totally different animal. Uh, next time, throw some rock and oboe. We'll be good to go. <laughs> but um, and I, I'm sure a lot of this song is, is a product of its time. I think Bob Ezner is a really good arranger. Uh, the sustained string part in the intro kind of makes me sound like the the background music to an episode of Highway to Heaven. Uh, kind of makes it utter shite. Um, 
Peter Chris is like he's never a super great vocalist. I mean, like you, Sharon, you had mentioned the raspiness of his, of his voice. Yeah. And I guess at one point with Hard Luck Woman came out, they were like looking for a guy that sounded like more Rod Stewart. And yeah. I guess Peter sounds somewhat yeah, like Rod yeah, Stewart. Yeah. Well, th- yeah, I think on the very faint, thin surface level, there's some Rodisms in there. <laughs> I'm biased because I'm a huge Rod fan. <laughs> right, let's fan edit. of the Rod. <laughs> uh, let's maybe we can fix that in editing. Uh, <laughs> I, it, I'm a huge Rod fan. <laughs> <laughs> it, maybe, maybe the song is just reflective of the time it was written. But uh, the track is Schmaltz City. I, I think that kind of describes the relationship between a musician and his significant other as they're trying to deal with his career on top of dealing with their relationship. But it's just so sappy. I'm just going to say this is Ray's unimpressed musical pick. <sighs> oh, gag me with a spoon. Ah. <sighs> <laughs> this track dates back before Kiss to a band Shit. Peter was in called Chelsea. He wrote the song with guitarist Stan Penridge, but it was known as Beck because it was about bandmate Mike Brand's wife Becky, who had called Rebecca. Yeah. yeah, who had called during band practices to ask Mike when he was coming home. The Chelsea version demo is out there from 1971 if you want to hear it. Ezrin, Jean, and Peter's ex-wife Lydia have all taken credit for the name change to Beth, so lunk-headed fans would know that Peter was singing about a female. But when Ezrin got a hold of this, he turned it into a lushly produced ballad, complete with Ezrin on piano, Dick Wagner wagging it out on acoustic guitar, <laughs> and members of the New York Philharmonic Orchestra on strings and woodwinds arranged by Ezrin. No members of KISS played on the track. Peter mules out the vocals with his gritty whiskey voice, and fuck me if I don't love this song. I think it's beautiful. The lyrics are about a musician telling his lady he's out playing late and he won't be home soon. He understands that she's lonely, but what can he do? The musical backing picks up on all the sad nuances of the lyrics, and I've always dug it. The rest of the band didn't dig it and didn't want this on the album, but their manager at the time, Bill Alcoyne, insisted it be put on, so they tried to bury it toward the end of the album. Originally, this was the B-side to the Detroit Rock City single, but Rosalie Trombley, a music director at the Big 8 CKLW in Windsor, Ontario, added Beth to the playlist (laughs) after her daughter heard it, loved it, and nagged her about it. Long story short, it became the biggest hit of Kiss's career, eventually going gold and earning the band a People's Choice Award. It also reached number 7 on the Billboard Hot 100 and is still Kiss's highest charting single. Live, Peter would sing to an edited, pre-recorded version of the backing track, and years later, when he left the band, Peter asked if they would refrain from playing it. Kiss honored that request for a long time, but bizarrely, in 1988, they had Peter's replacement, Eric Carr, redo the vocals to the original track for the compilation album Smashes, Thrashes, and Hits. In recent years, they've even had current drummer Eric Singer perform this live with acoustic backing by the rest of the band. The other drummers do a fine job with the vocals, but it's just not the same. You gotta have the original Catman sing it. You gotta have Peter Chris. And that brings us to the final track, Do You Love Me? Written by Paul Stanley, Kim Fowley, and Bob Ezrin. Shannon, last song, what do you say? I think it's a great ending. This is another, again, classic type of Kiss song. It's, you guys are better at like picking out the the particulars about like, you know, or I should say more like nuances of the actual like playing and whatnot. But to me, Kiss just pretty much defines just rock and roll and having a good time. I think it's a cool ending to a, to, to an album, just like the way it started, it ended appropriately. I give it two thumbs up. How's that? All right. Ray. You know, we've had, we've reviewed some bands that like, they've picked their final song. I think you should probably, like, I, I'm sure there's like a, a, a way to like plan out your album and stuff like that. And like, we've got, done some albums, like Tesla's um, Mechanical Resonance ends on a weird, you yeah. know, not that I don't like that last song, but it, it's just kind of a weird way to go out. 
this, I think Shannon nailed it, is a good way to go out. I yeah. mean, mm-hmm. Scott, I like how it's got the, the vocals and the drums on the intro, nothing else. Yeah. And then it kind of, they all kind of come into it. And the chorus is a really good blend of Paul's and Gene's voice, uh, vocal lines. Mm-hmm. Um, I even like the zombie-esque, ah, in yeah. the background. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the double lead break is solid. You know, once, uh, one of my, thing, the things I love, and it's just three notes, just. Yep. And then, and then, then harmonize on top of it, and, just, and they do it well. And the bell in the background is kind of fucking cool too. <laughs> I, I, I really dig that. I would like be like an Ed Grimley playing the triangle. I'd be like the bell guy. <laughs> you hit on something interesting though about like their harmonization. It's kind of it's interesting. I mean, just to dovetail on what you were saying, they're two totally different types of singers, but for whatever reason, they work well together. They always do. And and you're absolutely right. And you hear it again in this track. It's really cool. Yep. Oh yeah, especially on this track. Um, yeah. The riff isn't really like really particularly memorable to it, no. but then again, how many famous folk songs do you remember like having a great riff? To? Right, right. So I mean, it just kind of rhythm part, the rhythm guitar parts are there more for like you know rock backdrop, and that's yeah. that. There's nothing wrong with that. Yep. And I just picked up that they repeat the shit out of the chorus, but then they build the tension and by layering the ever love and piss out of it with yeah. like different parts. <laughs> um, they did the same thing on Shout It Out Loud too, and uh, I think it's kind of a cool songwriting device. And Bob Ezrin's additions to these songs are really mint, and uh, he. I said he truly was the George Martin of the band. Oh my god! But I, that's it because I I really like. I get it though. I get what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I do yeah. too. Sure. I understand sure. that. Yeah. So yeah. that's my take on "Do You Love Me." Yeah, and it, it's a really mint song. Yeah, the name of the game is simplicity, folks. A simple, steadfast drum beat leads to very simple chord sequences. Like you said, it's pretty not complicated. Yeah. No true guitar solo and a chorus. It's about as simple as it gets. But this track is fucking awesome. For one thing, the vocal performance of Paul Stanley, who owns this motherfucker. The lyrics are Paul playing the rock star of the hill, telling his female companion, hey, I know you really like all the limos, private planes, and money I have, but do you really love me or just all the rock star excess? Mr. Paul Stanley, Mr. Sensitive, looking (laughs) for love. He really belts out the vocals, though, and turns what could have been a snoozer of an album closer into a much more lively and engaging track. The middle section has an effect on his voice that makes him sound like he's on an old-fashioned telephone, but then he brings it back with a big but. I dig all his vocal Paulisms, the uhs and the <laughs> and the climactic pleading. I need you to, I want you to, as the track fades. This was frequently played live on many tours, and I always welcome hearing it. Now, after this, there's more or less a hidden track that's basically just an audio collage done by Ezrin to take up space and has crowd noise mixed with the choir on Great Expectations, mixed with a Paul Stanley stage rap, and it's completely useless. It was never credited on the original album, but then suddenly it's called Rock and Roll Party on CDs and digital releases. Fuck that. It's just some noise at the end of Do You Love Me as far as I'm concerned. Now that the track by track is done, we'll go into our final thoughts and album ratings. For you new listeners... The rating is a 0 to 5 system, with 5 being a favorite album of ours, all the way down to a 0, which induces nausea. Shannon, let's hear your final thoughts on Destroyer. I love this album. Um, it's it's a staple from my very early childhood, some of my earliest memories. I mean, I can remember like being like in my crib once and like, you know, seeing my crib, and then I remember running around the house singing Shout It Out Loud, as I've said at length. I have to give it a 5. And yes, it's probably like Aaron said at the very beginning of this podcast, it might be for some biased reasons, but for others, it is just pure, unadulterated joy. It's great. Um, It touches on many different aspects, you know, from hard rock to classical to to power ballad to even S&M, like we talked about before, to just awesome teenage angst and rock and roll. It's just great. It's classic Kiss. It is one of their best albums, and and it's been rated that way. And I will just love it forever. All right. Ray? I'm going to give this one a five, too. I think one of the hallmarks of any great rock and roll band is to talk about what's important to, you know, the youth at the time. And yeah, this song, was like they, they knew what they were doing, and they packaged it up quite nicely in quite a few tracks on this. And it's, a, it's also, I think, really easy, especially nowadays in hindsight, to dismiss Kiss as a brand and not a band. But I think at this point they were still, you know, a decent band. The songs are all solid. And I even do like the, the Ezrin touches. So, yeah, I'm going to say I'd give it a solid five. All right. I feel like you guys are humoring me with these fives. But, <laughs> no, not in the least bit. No. All right. <laughs> Not either. I feel funny just because I came to the game so late, actually. <laughs> you know, I feel like uh, 
I'm coming to Gary saying, I really love Fallout Boy. <laughs> well, I came unprepared. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Kiss Destroyer is not the greatest album ever made. I don't think anyone believes that. Hell, many Kiss fans don't even like it because of the garish production. At the end of 1975, Kiss was riding high. Their double album Alive was a huge hit and it broke the band. Instead of an interesting novelty act, they became huge rock stars almost overnight. They wanted to keep the momentum going on the next studio effort, so they brought in Bob Ezrin, a young hotshot producer who had worked with Alice Cooper and Lou Reed, among others. It was the first time Kiss used a big producer, and Ezrin immediately had an impact on the sessions, rejecting some of the band's musical ideas and taking control of the entire project. He wore a whistle around his neck and acted like a gym coach, telling the band, okay, campers, let's go to work. The band members weren't trained musicians, so Ezrin halted the sessions to teach them basic music terminology and theory, literally using a blackboard to show them what he was talking about. (laughs) Surprisingly, Kiss responded well to this, and Ezrin got some of the best performances of their careers up to that point out of them. But he also added sound effects and studio tricks that gave the songs a weird polish that pissed off a lot of old-school fans when the album came out. Sales of Destroyer were sluggish at first until Beth became a fluke hit and ignited album sales, with the album eventually going multi-platinum. Over time, it's come to be regarded as one of their better records, with many classic tracks, and the band still plays many songs off it in concert. In 1976, I was six years old. At the time, I was interested in monsters, you know, like Frankenstein, Dracula, Godzilla, and I was also into superheroes, Superman, Batman, Spider-Man, Fantastic Four. I was at my grandparents' house looking through a stack of records that belonged to my uncle, as I had a strong music interest from hearing my parents' records basically out of the womb. I was a particular fan of Elton John at that time, but then I stumbled across this album cover, and I looked at the four characters with their wild costumes, and I didn't see a rock band. I saw superheroes. I said to my uncle, what is this? And he said, that's Kiss. You want to listen to it? Yeah. I wanted to know what superheroes playing music sounded like. So he put the record on the turntable and handed me his headphones. It was the first time I ever listened to music through headphones. I listened to the whole album, and I found out what superheroes playing music sounded like. When it was over, I asked my uncle if he had any more Kiss, and then he showed me the cover to Alive. I was amazed. These were real people and not just cartoon characters. I couldn't believe it. My uncle let me listen to Alive, and from then on, I became obsessed with this band until about 1980. Every time I visited my grandparents and my uncle was around, he let me listen to Destroyer. And then that Christmas of 76, my Aunt Terry got the record for me as a present. I was thrilled. It was the first record I ever owned. And I played the shit out of it every day and even took it to school, where my first grade teacher occasionally would let me play it during lunch. Now, I loved listening to my parents' music, but this was mine. I discovered it myself. I think everyone has those moments in your life when something's happened to you and you become changed somehow. It can be terrible, like a divorce or a death of a loved one, or it can be a good thing, like a marriage, getting your driver's license or your favorite sports team winning the championship. I am not exaggerating when I say this album had a profound effect on me. It turned me from a kid with a musical interest into a musical obsessive that continues to this day. It was one of those moments in my life. In early 2018, I got the chance to meet Gene Simmons, my favorite member of my favorite band, and tell him, to his face, what he, his band, and this album means to me. He took off those shades he always wears and looked me in the eye as I told him my story, and he at least appeared to be genuinely interested. As I was finishing, I began to choke up. I was becoming emotional. I was embarrassed that it was happening in front of him. And then he stepped forward and gave me a hug. It was one of the most surreal moments of my life. Kiss Destroyer is not the greatest album ever made. But it's my favorite. I give it a five. Last but not least, I have to give very special thanks to Uncle Jim Martell and Terry the Aunt Unit for creating the monster. I love you both. We got an iTunes review. It's a five-star review titled A Five for a Z and comes to us from the one, the only, super listener Sam George. He writes, Binge this podcast if you know what's good for you. 
They know where you live. Happy New Year, mofos. Happy New Year to you too, Sam. Right back at Sammy. And to all the listeners out there, let's keep those iTunes reviews coming. They help out the podcast a lot, and we want you all to know we appreciate the downloads. Thank you. (laughs) And that's going to do it for this episode. You can find this podcast at places like iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, TuneIn, Google Play, and Spotify. So if you like what you hear, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review of it. If you take the time to do that, we'll read your review right here on the show. If you'd like to contact us directly, we can be reached at RidiculousRockRecords at gmail.com and also on the Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews Facebook page, where there's a link to hear each podcast, including the R4 Summit branch of the show. You can also recommend the show on Facebook if you'd prefer to do it that way. And yes, we'll read your Facebook recommendation on the podcast. You want to come on the podcast and talk about an album with us? Shoot us an email and we'll set it up. We're always looking for co-pilots to host the show with us, and we would also welcome any requests or suggestions for albums to cover. Feel free to leave all of your feedback, comments, reviews, and or suggestions at any of those places I just described. We'd love to hear from you. So for the R4 Summit, I'm Aaron. I'm Shannon. And I'm Ray. Later. Thanks. Anyhow, anyhow, man.
golf was better on a, on a kitty myself. <laughs> 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 golf had a better touch. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God, that's funny. <laughs> All right, I need to take a drink. <laughs> Yeah, Dad, Dad used to say, what are you listening to? I said, kiss, kiss off, he'd say. Kiss off. <laughs> yes. And all our uncles did, too. Well, no, not all. The older, our older uncles did. I was going to say, kiss Uncle Dave. Him. Uncle Dave always, no, yeah, me. yeah, Uncle Dave said, kiss off. I they used to, Uncle Dave doing that. They used to yell at me to piss me off, you know. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you still listen to kiss? Yeah, kiss off.